Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Women's War, a production of iHeartRadio. The weird thing about war is how damned normal most of it feels. One of my strongest memories of the battle for Mosul isn't the time an ISIS sniper nearly put a round through my head or the time that an ISIS mortar team dropped a pair of 120mm shells on the other side of a wall from me. It's a night I spent with my photographer, my fixers, in an old bombed-out mosque with a bunch of Iraqi civil defense guys. While I sat and drank tea, they ripped out the wiring from an old refrigerator and used it to connect an old CRT television to a generator. They succeeded, and we spent the night drowning out the sounds of gunfire and death with a blurry, subtitled transmission of the film Clear in Present Danger. Today, we are driving to Raqqa, the former capital of the Islamic State, to embed with one of Rojava's military units. This will not be an exciting war story, full of blood and guts and daring do, but it is still a war story, because every story that comes out of Syria today is, in some way, a war story. Let's talk some more about Raqqa. More than three-quarters of the city was leveled during the battle to liberate it, and as is usually the case with violent liberations, very little was left behind aside from shattered buildings and shattered lives. The SDF have been criticized for the level of destruction they wrought upon the city. But the bulk of the actual damage was done by air and artillery strikes, conducted by American guns and American planes. It was an ugly fight, as sieges of cities always are. In the modern era, military planners have developed a new term, feral cities, for what happens when an urban area within a state passes out of the control of that state. The United States military has spent years developing special small unit tactics for fighting these sorts of wars, but when it came to Mosul and Raqqa, they let local forces do most of the dying and supported them instead by blowing up whole city blocks. I caught several chunks of the battle from Mosul myself, and I have failed ever since to adequately describe the brutality I witnessed. And from everything I've read and heard, Raqqa was just as bad. There are very valid arguments that more of the city was destroyed, and more of its people killed, than was necessary. 
Some of the blame for this surely falls upon the SDF, who, after losing more than 11,000 of their comrades in battle, took every opportunity they could to avoid fighting door to door. A good deal of the blame, though, must also fall upon the Trump administration. The man who campaigned on bombing the shit out of ISIS delivered on that promise, at least. Civilian casualties as a result of U.S. airstrikes increased massively after Donald Trump took office. By 2019, annual civilian deaths caused by American action in Afghanistan alone had tripled. Raqqa's destruction also amped up significantly under Trump, just as his administration relaxed reporting requirements for the Department of Defense and effectively made it much easier for them to avoid telling anyone about deadly airstrikes. In April 2019, Amnesty International released a report titled Rhetoric versus Reality, How the Most Precise Air Campaign in History Left Raqqa the Most Destroyed City in Modern Times. By some counts, up to 80% of Raqqa was leveled. As Jake and I shower and dress and pound Mahmoud instant coffee, the worst instant coffee on God's green earth, I think about what it means to be the most destroyed city in modern times. When I visited Mosul, there were places where buildings and the people in them had been pounded into a substance finer than sand. I literally cannot picture a more destroyed city. I will admit to feeling some nerves ahead of this trip, too. Our goals that day were twofold to interview the co-presidents in charge of defending Raqqa, and to go on patrol with a squadron of SDF fighters in search of ISIS sleeper cells. The former capital of the Islamic State is still filled with its soldiers, dashis as some call them. They'd carried out several attacks in the days before our arrival, and it was made very clear to us that Raqqa is one of those places in the world where just about anything could happen during our visit. We meet Chabat a bit after dawn, and, after pounding down another terrible coffee and smoking a cigarette that actually tastes good by comparison, we pile into the van and roll off down the road. On the way, we see a line of gas trucks, dozens long, waiting for their chance to cross into the regime-controlled chunks of Syria. These trucks are part of the devil's bargain that Rojava has struck to ensure its survival. The fuel gives them critical leverage against the Assad regime. If the government gets pushy, they can throttle the flow of oil and stop serious tanks in their tracks. We stop for breakfasts in Tel Tamar, a small mixed Assyrian, Kurdish, and Arab village. Chabat takes us to a little roadside stand and orders eight or nine oblong flatbread pizza-style dishes. They're delicious. All of the food here is delicious. Mm. Oh my god. This is, what is this? Zatar? Mind? We get to talking a bit of shop about our experiences with war zone journalism, and we soon move on to the subject of cigarettes, which are almost an item of religious significance to soldiers at the front. If you embed in an Iraqi military unit, you will be offered many, many cigarettes. And you'd be kind of a dick if you turned one down. It's just the way. Chabat informs us that, in this regard, things in Rojava are not wildly different from things in Iraq. One thing this place never runs short of is cigarettes. No, I'm... I stay in all the front lines and everyone smoking, UIPJ, YPK, everyone, nearby. And they offer sometimes. Mm. No, no smoker. Yeah. Okay. But I remember one journalist, he quit smoking for a few years and he came to here and he wanted to interview one of the Swedish uh, ISIS. The day he arrived, banned. They stopped all the interviews and camps and everything. In the evening, I, I found him on the stairs sitting at small No! The conversation moves on, and Jake talks about a friend of his who was stabbed to death during a robbery gone bad back in his hometown. 
There's a lot of talk about what leads to such utterly pointless crimes and how they can be more unsettling than the targeted violence from groups like ISIS. Chabat tells us that she's glad her brother died fighting for something, at least, as opposed to falling in some random cruel tragedy. She tells us she thinks stuff like that is less common here, perhaps because death from other things is so much more common. It's a sort of conversation I've had before. I was in Dublin, Ireland at a hostel on the day after the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting. I wound up drinking and talking about the massacre with a Venezuelan friend. Now, he'd actually seen people murdered for their property with his own eyes, shot to death by masked men on motorcycles in the streets of Caracas. Even so, he was horrified by the idea of a school shooting like Sandy Hook. People kill each other here, he told me, but no one does that. No one does that. After a couple hours on the road, we arrive at the SDF media office. It's a dusty gray-white compound of several buildings that looks like it used to be a private business. Today, it's where the sundry militias of Rojava interface with journalists. We will come to know this place very well. There's a gate to the compound, and a YPG man guards it. I notice his AK-47 as we pass by. He's customized it beautifully, with a colorful wrap for the magazine that turns it into a copy of the YPG patch on his shoulder. There is a single bullet mounted to the top of the barrel, stored on a little pop-out container. Chabat explains that this setup is common among the soldiers of the YPG. The last bullet is to use on themselves, rather than be captured by ISIS. We enter the office and sit down for the requisite Kurdish tea with a man who very much wants to be our new friend, Mr. English. That's not his real name, but it is what he seriously called himself and what everyone else in the office sort of eye-rollingly called him. Mr. English is an SDF media liaison and an English literature major. He has powerful dad joke energy, and he is supremely excited for a chance to put his English-speaking skills to use. Here you go, here you go. Here you go. Here you go in America. Yeah. And British, here you are, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Here you are. Here you are. Here you are. Here you are. American, here you go. And Americans say, um, so if, we, if, if a Brit goes into the shop, I say, uh, please, can I have that? Americans say, can I get that? We sit and sip coffee and answer just a whole bunch of questions about our language from our very excited new friend. While we do that, Chabat talks to SDF officers and works out the final arrangements for our trip to Raqqa. She works, and Jake and I listen to Mr. English talk about his daughter. He shows us many pictures and brags that she just graduated college in Aleppo with an engineering degree. Like many in Rojava, she found herself in the awkward position of living in the autonomous region of Syria, which rejects government control, but going to school in regime territory. The whole conversation occurs in what is essentially a waiting room, with walls bedecked in pictures of the SDF's martyrs. Directly above my chair is a plastic box with a camera in it, underneath a martyr's photo. Mr. English explains to me that this is the camera that man was carrying when he was shot dead, working for the SDF's media division at the front lines. It's a fun thing to see right before you go to embed as a member of the media with a military unit looking for ISIS guys. We receive approval to drive into Raqqa. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? 
I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so it's uh, 10.35 a.m., Wednesday, July 24th, and we're uh, on our way into Raqqa. Raqqa looks a lot like Mosul did when last I visited. The destruction is extensive, but it is markedly less scary than we had been led to expect, at least so far. A decent amount of repair work is clearly underway already. We pass lively streets filled with people and shop stalls, and then, a block or two later, we'll hit streets that have been absolutely leveled by high explosives. They're like islands of life in a sea of death, or like anti-tumors of some sort of weird reverse cancer slowly taking back the ruins. As Alain's van whirls over cracked and broken streets, we in the van share a lively conversation about suicide. I noticed when we, uh... The guy, the guy who was on guard duty, had the bullet mounted on the top of his AK-47. And that's yeah, always it. in case if it's all there is this bullet with uh-huh. This reminds Jake of a Kurdish fighter he used to know, Haval Kemal, who found himself cut off after a firefight, surrounded by ISIS. Lovely guy. You got locked down in a house. Grenade. Whoa. Yeah. Oh my God! I, I mean. Yeah, it's crazy. And one of the other guys sent me the picture. 
We stop by the side of the street, and Chabat's friend Ahmed jumps into the car with us. He's a lifelong Raqqa resident who now works for the SDF. Ahmed lived here back when ISIS was in charge, and, interestingly enough, he found them okay at first. Crime went down, at least, he tells us with a shrug. But over time, things grew markedly more brutal. In the years since Raqqa fell, or was liberated, Ahmed started working with the SDF. He tells us he's happier with them, and that he likes seeing Arabs and Kurds eating together. I asked him if it took some getting used to, going from dash control to working with a woman like Chabat. In response, he swings his arm around Chabat's shoulder and fixes me with an easy grin. He says, Chabat is my best friend. Of course, Chabat brings Ahmed a lot of work, and he makes a nice side business helping to set up and arrange embeds and interviews with the SDF. I don't know the man, but he strikes me as the sort of very friendly, very charming fellow who will find a way to make a decent life for himself under any system. We stop outside a large complex of buildings, based around what looks like it used to be a very large office park. It's been appropriated by the Syrian Democratic Forces as part of the nerve center for their soldiers defending Raqqa. Armed men and women of the YPG and J form a buzzing hive of activity outside. A regular procession of technicals, Toyota trucks with machine guns mounted in the beds, pass through on their way to conduct patrols. Jake, Chabat, and I will be heading out with one of those patrols soon. But before that can happen, we've got to have a meeting with the two co-presidents of the Raqqa Asaish. I've had a lot of meetings like this when I was in Iraq. We'd be trying to secure an embed up at the front, and first we'd have to hang out with a room full of Iraqi generals and colonels to put in some FaceTime and get their permission to go forward. This generally meant an hour or two of watching Emirati television and drinking chai coffee. We'd have long, winding conversations that would end with one of the generals telling us we could go up to the front now. My experience with the Rocket Defense Council would prove very different. We are led in to see the co-presidents of Raqqa's Asaish, Haval Chechik and Haval Kabat. I realize that's confusing. Unlike our Chabat, this one is a man in his mid-50s. Haval Chechik is a woman of about the same age. This is my first time seeing a woman in one of these general-level sit-downs before embedding with a unit. At first, she pays us little attention while her male colleague answers questions. Haval Chechik is busy juggling multiple cell phones and a regular stream of subordinates darting in and out with questions and answers. She wears urban pattern camo fatigue pants, sneakers, and a dark gray safari shirt. She has a square, serious face and hard eyes. Jake and I exchange some polite Q&As with her colleague, but Chechik is the person we really want to talk with. And after 20 minutes or so, we succeed in getting her attention enough for a serious interview. I start by asking her how Raqqa, the city that spent years under the thumb of hardline and seriously misogynistic Islamic militants, adapted to having hundreds of armed women patrolling its streets. Of course it was hard. Things were difficult until the people here started to believe in us. There were many times when people refused to recognize our authority. They would say, these are women. How can they pretend to administer our city? How can these women be in charge of us? Some people would even lecture us and say, it is morally wrong for women to wear that sort of clothing. Women should not be in the security forces at all. Haval Chichek explains that her process of building personal trust in the community has been slow and mainly focused around repeated, firm but polite conversations with leaders in the community. We made them understand. After so many conversations, they accepted that I was determined and there was a place for me in this community. It's not as difficult now. I'm sure determination was a factor, but I'm equally sure that the sheer number of guns Haval Chechek and her comrades could bring to bear had an impact on them being taken seriously. She more or less confirmed this when I asked her for her take on how this new system had come together. We seized it. I asked what she saw as the importance of having both men and women out on the street, protecting their community. 
Women have an important role in this. Why? Because if you don't have any women in the security forces, then the women in that society will not be able to communicate with the men on an equal level. We got to talking a little more about her background and what her life had been like before the revolution. She told us that as a young woman living under Assad's dictatorship, she'd thought about doing this kind of work for years before she ever got the opportunity. Whenever I would pass through a regime checkpoint, I would daydream about what it would be like to take over from them. I thought, after all the violence we've experienced at their hands, we would have to be more democratic if we were in their position. And so once ISIS was defeated, the SDF's goal was not just to occupy the city, but to actually give the young women here who'd spent years living under ISIS a chance to take control of their own lives. After the beginning, after we secured the city, we immediately started recruiting women for the Asayish. Seventy women joined. The women took their place everywhere. The checkpoints office, media office, commissary in the bureau, the administration, the patrols and communications in every place. Jake and I brought up that, in our own countries, women had only very recently been allowed to apply for frontline combat roles. I told her that this was controversial among many men in my country who thought women weren't as capable of doing these kinds of jobs. That is the system preventing women from empowering themselves. When women are empowered, man's power deserts him. At this point in the conversation, Haval Chabat spoke up. As a man, if there's a woman on your side, your work becomes easier. He brought up American-style democracy and questioned whether or not men and women are really equal in my country. In the United States, how many women do you have in government? And still they don't get to make decisions. Trump says, I withdraw, and he withdraws. There is a woman next to him, but she is just for decoration. In the American Congress, likewise, there are women, but they cannot take any decision. It's men who are in charge. He points out that gender balance is one of the key advantages of the co-presidency system, which, he says, frustrates the U.S. forces that they work with on a regular basis. The Americans ask us, what is this co-chair system? They didn't like it because having two points of contact made things more complex than our military prefers. But, as Haval Chabat pointed out, If the chair were alone, it would probably be only one man, and that's not right. You suppress half of society. A young soldier comes to the door and signals that our ride is just about ready. I have time for one more question, and so I ask Haval Chichek how many people in Raqqa today she thinks really support the new system and the gains for women's rights, and how many wish things would go back to the way they were under ISIS or the Assad regime. The men in public, they say they want women to be empowered, but inside, in terms of the essence, the mentality, they don't change. The masculine mentality cannot be changed. She fixes her partner with a strange look that I can't quite read. I don't know either of them well enough to tell if this is a joke between the two of them or if she's subtly signaling something about Haval Chabat. I thank them both for their time, and then we head down the stairs to meet the men and women that we'll be going on patrol with. We're getting on the truck. Oh, no, I can can keep it. We meet them down at the base vehicle pool. It's a happening location filled with a couple of dozen very busy men and women. The unit we'll be going on patrol with is 12 strong, 10 men and 2 women. They're busy loading their two RPK medium machine guns into the beds of the two Toyota Hiluxes that we'll be riding into hopefully not battle. I should stop here to say a little something about the Hilux. We don't have them in the United States. Our equivalent would be the Tacoma. And on the surface, that's all the Hilux is, yet another regional Toyota pickup. But if you travel the sundry war zones of planet Earth, the single most common vehicle you see won't be a Humvee or some other military jeep. It won't be a tank or an armored personnel carrier. It'll be the noble Hilux, bearing men and women on their way to war, or acting as a mobile gun platform for some armed force on a budget. 
Over the years, I've seen Hiluxes mounted with anti-vehicular cannons, grenade launchers, heavy machine guns, and, one time, a recoilless rifle the size of a motorcycle. The SDF Hiluxes we hop onto are humble by comparison. The machine guns in the back don't even have a permanent mount. They rest on the top of the cabin, perched on a stack of rugs. The largest man in each vehicle holds the gun in place on our drive into downtown. I don't speak Arabic, the language used by all the soldiers in this unit, so I couldn't really judge what they were saying, but it was easy to pick up on the general vibe of the unit. Most of them were from 17 to 19 years old, with the two women in the unit being 17 and 18. The oldest person was a man in his early 20s with very cool sunglasses. Before we loaded up, both the young women seemed to mostly stick with each other, but when the go time hit, they both hopped into separate vehicles. The less populated districts we drive through on our way to downtown Raqqa have been just utterly leveled. Piles of rubble that are, themselves, the size of large buildings loom over us. It reminds me a lot of Mosul. A man with a rifle could lurk behind any of the broken windows or bombed-out door frames we pass. But none do. Today. As our drivers do the vehicle equivalent of elbow their way through traffic, Jake and I talk with the soldiers about what it's like to patrol through the streets of your own shattered home. He's saying that seeing his hometown like this hurts him as much as it would hurt him if he'd lost his arm. Seeing the ruined skyline of Raqqa is like looking at his own severed limb in the dirt. As we near our destination, Jake turns to the young woman in the truck with us. She's just 17, and she looks like she should still be in high school. I know I had friends back in the U.S. who joined the Marine Corps at age 17, but it's still strange to see someone so young in a uniform holding a gun. Jake asks her a question. Yes, sir. So we're in a city right now where women were enslaved, they were killed, they had no rights, they couldn't even walk the streets, you know, without covering their whole faces. Now you're here and you're keeping the city safe as a female with all these people here. So she said, yeah, these guys, uh, we was like completely banded to be out of the home or uncovered. Uh, but uh, now I am participating more effectively. It's like uh, changed my life, like I'm free. She's saying that under ISIS, she was banned from even going outside if she was unescorted by a man. Now she's free to participate in society. And she's decided to do that by picking up a gun and protecting her community. We hit a traffic circle in the middle of town and both trucks pull sideways, blocking off sections of traffic and bringing the stop-and-go action of midday Raqqa to a stop. The young soldiers we're with pile out of their trucks quickly and set up a pair of airsats checkpoints. Drivers are briefly questioned and forced to show documents. In a few instances, cars are searched inside and out for contraband weaponry. I spend a lot of time looking at the faces of the people in the traffic and the people being searched. Raqqa is not a normal part of Rojava, and the streets feel profoundly different. For one thing, there are an awful lot of angry people here. Equal numbers of men and women on the street seem to both fall into this group, but they express it differently. The angry women tend to wear full niqabs, with only their eyes visible, and they turn away from us as soon as we see them. The angry men are different. They tend to be much older. Most are in their late 40s or 50s. They have hard faces, very long beards, and you can see in their eyes that they were much happier back when the previous folks were in charge. I particularly enjoy seeing the young women in our unit take licenses and give orders to these men. As they go about their business, I can see little girls on the street, watching curiously, taking all this in. Whatever else is going on here, however permanent the other achievements of the revolution prove to be, this is undeniably real. The memories in these young girls' heads may prove to be the most radical accomplishment of the Rojavan project. 
The patrol passes without violence, and after a couple hours, we return to the base. When we get back there, we see several smaller groups of soldiers preparing to head out. Our truck stops, and we all get off and say our goodbyes. As Chabat thanks our hosts, I find my attention drawn a few feet to the right, where the driver of another Hilux chats with one of his comrades, a short woman wearing a headscarf. She's pointing to different locations on the map, and he's nodding in agreement with her. It's a small moment that's noteworthy for how normal it is here, now, just two years after the Islamic State was kicked out. We say our goodbyes, pile into Alon's van, and then we're off to the city of Kobani for the night. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. 
As we barrel down the highway, Jake Chabot and I talk about our interview with the two Asaish leaders we met this morning. When we'd asked the woman, Haval Chichek, about her early life, she'd given very few details, just saying that she lived at home with her family before the revolution. That may have been true, but Jake suspected she was from the mountains. This is common local slang for, she was in the PKK. A number of influential figures in Rojavan politics and in the military got their start in the PKK, or Kurdistan Workers' Party. The PKK is the originally Marxist guerrilla group that helped to found this place. Membership in the PKK is the kind of thing people talk about furtively, and there are a lot of false rumors as a result of this. The old fighters from the PKK tend to be quiet, stone-faced, and hard. Chabat tells us that people used to spread rumors that she was from the mountains, because she never wears any makeup. We enter Kobani in the late afternoon, just a little before sunset. Chabat takes us to see the city's enormous cemetery, which is several times the size of the one in Kamishlo. Kobani was the site of some of the bloodiest fighting against ISIS, and the scale of death that occurred here is obvious in the rows and rows of colorful graves. We watch the sunset there. The orange light of the fading sun mixes well with the reds, greens, and yellows of these revolutionary graves. As I walk through the rows of dead, I find myself drawn to the dates of their birth and of their death. I do the math in my head with every Shahid I pass. A terrible number are 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. A few are even younger. In the dark days when ISIS laid siege to this town, an awful lot of kids were forced to take up arms to defend their homeland. Thinking back to the 17-year-old fighter we met in Raqqa, I realize that many still are. Kobani is a city permanently shaped by the battle that ran through its streets from September of 2014 to January of 2015. It's been called the Kurdish Stalingrad. By the end of the fighting, more than 70% of the city lay in ruins. Almost all of it has been rebuilt in the half-decade since, but a single, destroyed neighborhood remains. The local communes in the city decided to leave it as a memorial and an open-air museum. Chabat takes us there next, just as darkness hits. You can see everything, just as it was. Rubble piled up into fighting positions, cars blown into the sides of buildings, ruined tanks, pulverized masonry. It's not lost on me that, from several of the old fighting positions, you can see across the border into Turkey. Kobani has been called the city that stopped ISIS, and the town's spirit of resistance is more than a little infectious. Chabat takes us next to the very center of town to show us the victory monument the people of Rojava chose to make to celebrate their struggle. It sits at a roundabout in the center of town. In the middle is a tall white statue of a winged woman, raising her arm in defiance as she beckons an unseen enemy forward in the universal gesture of, Come at me, motherfucker. At the winged woman's feet are two very real ISIS tanks, both blown apart in heavy combat. She's saying that it's not like the other statues she's seen in her country, most of which celebrate a single powerful man, generally Bashar al-Assad or his father. It's also not like any of the bright posters of Ajalan that we've seen in most of the government buildings in Rojava. At the time all this happened, late July 2019, the long-term survival odds for Rojava were pretty low, and they haven't exactly gotten higher in the months since. There's only so much that revolutionary pluck and a defiant spirit can do against Hellfire missiles, F-22 bombers, and all the heavy artillery that a major nation-state like Turkey can bring to bear. 
Even so, as the months have passed and brought more stories of violence, disease, and the inexorable march of authoritarian governments worldwide, I still find myself inspired when I think back to that statue of a winged woman, beckoning death forward and promising to at least give it an even fight. Porta mi via, che mi sento di morire. The Women's War is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.